Let's read from Matthew 12, 18 through 21. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, and him who I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Started to make waving sounds over there on my microphone just to fill in the audio there. It's a little bit muted, but you still get the message, right? We do need an anchor for our souls, and that anchor is hope, and that's what this series is all about, hope, and that's something we desperately need right now. We're glad you're here today to hear this message or if you're watching online. I got to tell you, the last couple of days I've come up to the building, I've been surprised and impressed. I don't know if you've been around the building lately, but there are a lot of people here. There were cars lined up to get into the parking lot. The parking lot was cram-packed, and there was a line of people wrapped around our building. And at first, I thought people were just trying to get here early to get a good seat to hear my sermon, and then I realized it was early voting. I think I use that, vote, that, that joke every four years, and I think it gets the same response every four years. <laughs> but you know what? In four years, if I'm here, you can count on it. I'll use it again. <laughs> yeah, they were here for early voting, and if you have been living under a rock, or if you have not turned on your TV or gone to the mailbox in the last three weeks, you may not know there is an important election coming up Tuesday. Don't we say that about every election? This is an important election. Have we ever said this election is unimportant? (laughs) It doesn't matter, whatever. It's always important, right? And especially this time, people are, are going out of their way and businesses and organizations going out of their way to encourage people to vote. I saw that Krispy Kreme will give you a free donut on Tuesday if you vote. So I plan to vote a dozen times and see if I can get a dozen donuts. But it is an interesting time in our nation. There's just this underlying tension that seems to be there, and sometimes it seems to bubble up a little bit and and hit above the surface, and who knows what will happen this week. And I thought it might be good before we get into our sermon just to pause and have a word of prayer. And so let's pray together. Father God, you are the God of all gods, the King of all kings, and Father, Our hope is in you and in your son, Jesus. Father, you know that as a nation right now, we are uh, in some strange, interesting times. Father, I pray, we pray, that whatever happens on Tuesday, whatever happens this week, whatever happens this year, next year, and the years to come, that our faith and our hope will be in you. Father, we humbly pray for your wisdom, your guidance. We humbly pray for your continued blessings and mercy for us 
as a nation, for us as a congregation, and for us as a community. But Father, we do not take those things for granted, but we give you praise for the blessings that you give us. Father, our prayer is that we would seek your will, that we would be ambassadors of your kingdom, and that we would live by your word and follow your will. So Father, bless us, especially over the next few days. Give us a sense of peace. Give us a sense of contentment, because that all comes from our faith in you. Thank you for that hope that is an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Speaking of prayer, let me just do a quick plug for our upcoming outdoor prayer service on November 14th. That's a Saturday. That evening at 5 o'clock, we're going to get in the north parking lot. If the weather's nice, in chairs, some people, and in cars, and we're going to spend some time praying for our nation, praying for this community, praying for this congregation. And I hope that you'll plan to be a part of that event if you're here in town. Well, it is an election coming up this week, and I I wonder, do you know how much money the presidential candidates have spent, they've invested on this presidential campaign? Can you guess how much money? One source I saw said combined a record $5.2 billion. That's billion with the B as in unbelievable. (laughs) $5.2 billion. And my first reaction to that is, man, (laughs) You could really do a lot of good with $5.2 billion. If you just gave them half of that money for their campaign and just used half of that money, think of the good that you could do in our world, the way that you could help people. But that's not where we are. They spent $5.2 billion. And you know what they spent that money on? They spent that money on one thing, to sell you one thing, to sell me one thing. You know what that one thing is? hope they sold us hope that's why they invest all of that money that's why they're pouring all of those resources into getting your vote because they sell us hope like all the candidates before them they are saying that I know what's going on and I know what to do and if you want a bright future then put your hope in me I mean, that's what every candidate says And so they're selling us hope, hope for a better life, hope for a good life, hope for a prosperous and a peaceful future, hope. It's the same thing Israel bought into when they demanded a king from God. They looked around the other nations and they said, we want to be like the other nations. We need a human ruler. We need a king, their version of a president, a little bit, obviously different in a monarchy, But they wanted a king. They wanted a king to deliver Israel out of global obscurity to global notoriety. They wanted a king to assemble an army and and defend Israel against the Philistines, who, by the way, had already attacked them and taken their most prized possession, the Ark of the Covenant. They wanted a king so that they could tell the world and show the world that they were a world power. They wanted someone they could see. Not just a king floating around in the clouds in heaven. They wanted someone they could look to, someone they could probably influence. They wanted someone the other nations could see. They wanted a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, who was God's chosen judge at the time, 
at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. God was not pleased with his people for pushing his leadership aside in favor of a king. But God wasn't surprised. In fact, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he says, when you settle into the land, when you get settled there into the promised land, you're going to ask for a king. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, you're going to see some stipulations that God has for his kings of Israel, for the kings that they appoint and choose. Some very specific things they are to do and not do. They are not to have a lot of horses. They are not to have multiple wives. They are not to pursue gold and silver. They are to have the Torah, a copy of the Torah with them, pretty much at all times, reading it. That is the law of God. So they can rule by its principles. Well, if you know the history of Israel, most of its kings didn't do those things that God lined out for the kings to do. God wasn't surprised when Israel demanded a king, but he was disappointed. And he wasn't the only one who was disappointed. Back in the text, 1 Samuel 8, verse 6, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. Isn't that, that's just like us, to take something like that personal. It's not you they've rejected. They have rejected me as their king, God says. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, small g gods, so they are doing to you. You see, when you look at Israel's history, you'll see a recurring theme of this constant discontentment with the governance of God and the provision of God and the protection of God. The deeper they drove their stakes into the promised land, the more their allegiance seemed to shift from heavenly to earthly. Their land, their law, their leaders, that's where they put their hope. All the while dismissing the divine constant who had protected them, who brought them out of Egypt, who provided for them, who was leading and guiding them. I wonder if maybe the same thing doesn't happen to us sometimes. I wonder if maybe we don't allow the same thing to happen. God let Israel have a king. As we know from Scripture and in our own lives, sometimes when people choose to go their own way, even if that way is in the opposite direction of God's will, God allows it. He doesn't force us. So he gives them their king. Saul is appointed as the first king, and eventually that became a disaster. And then David, who was handpicked by God, yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but if you know David's story, he was far from a moral giant. And then Solomon. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, and you look at all those stipulations that God set out for his kings, Solomon virtually broke every one of them. And then the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and you start to really see the corruption and immorality of the kings of those kingdoms. And eventually, those kingdoms, both of them, are taken into captivity. Assyria takes the northern kingdom. Babylon takes the southern kingdom. They become exiles. And you look at Israel and you say, you wanted a king? How's that working out for you? 
Walter Brueggemann said this, the monarchy substitutes human power for the availability of Yahweh, God. In choosing monarchy, Israel chooses a desperate autonomy that finally can lead only to futility, abandonment, and eventually death. You see, that is the problem with human kings and man-made kingdoms. They are human and man-made. And yet, so often, we as people put our hopes in them. Our hope for happiness, for success, for security, for the good life. We put our hope in kings and kingdoms, in governments and presidents, in systems of democracy, in capitalism, to provide all the things that end up reinforcing our citizenship here on earth. They're like hammers driving those stakes deeper and deeper into the soil of this earth, this life, this nation. So you fast forward now to the first century. Leave Israel's history and go to the first century. The Roman government is a world power. And under Pax Romana, people in the Roman Empire are living their best lives, a peaceful life, a prosperous life. And the Roman emperor is literally referred to as the Lord and Savior. That's what he is called by the people, Lord and Savior. And when one emperor has a son who would become emperor, you know what that son is called? A son of God. Because after all, he is the offspring of the Lord of the land. Meanwhile, for the Jews, they're awaiting their own Lord. The anointed Messiah sent from God to rescue Israel, to build an army, to construct a government, to deliver Israel back to prominence. That's where their hope is. Their hope for a better life was put on the shoulders of this long-awaited Messiah. In fact, Isaiah 9 prophesies that the government will be on his shoulders. And then it happened. We read about it in Luke chapter 2. When the angel appears to the shepherds, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. When you listen to this announcement, to this news, with Roman ears, it is very political. This is a political announcement. It is disturbing to most who would hear this news. It is a subversive proclamation of a new king, a new Lord. And if I'm hearing this as someone who is prospering in the Roman Empire, I am thinking, wait a second, we already have a Lord and Savior. We have the emperor, we have Caesar. And for that matter, the Jews had Herod. There was no room for another king, for another Lord, for another Savior. And although many of the Jews simply looked at Herod as a political placeholder, their expectation of a Messiah was anything but what Jesus brought when he came. You see, when Jesus lived here among us, he revealed the nature of God's kingdom, and it wasn't what most people expected. It wasn't about power and authority. It wasn't about violence. 
It was about mercy and forgiveness and love. Those are the values of God's kingdom. And Jesus taught those things, and he embodied those things, and so much more. And so we begin to see in Jesus, his teachings, his life, even his death, we begin to see this contrast, don't we? This contrast between the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, and the kingdom of most worlds, most governments, most systems that, that rule how we live as, as citizens. You see this contrast, it is so clear. And in Matthew 12, the text that was read earlier, the the chapter opens with Jesus being criticized for working on the Sabbath. Some of his disciples had picked heads of grain to, to eat as they're walking through because they're hungry. And then Jesus had healed the mangled hand of, of a man who was suffering. And the Pharisees said, now wait a second, you're working on the Sabbath, you're breaking the Sabbath. And they didn't like Jesus' response to their accusations. And the text says that they went out and plotted how to kill Jesus, how to get rid of this would-be Lord, this King. Matthew 12, verse 15, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And here's this this prophecy. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry, cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And then look at verse 21. In his name, the nations will put their trust. In his name, the nations will put their trust. Do you see the contrast? Jesus is kind. He is humble. He is a servant. He is proclaiming justice to the nations. He is healing those who are sick and hurting all the while not being combative or crying out in the streets, not drawing attention to himself. He shows mercy. He withdraws quietly. He doesn't cause a scene. It's not exactly the campaign strategies that we've seen recently, is it? Not calling attention to yourself, withdrawing quietly. Again, we see the contrast And so where does the text say the nations will put their trust? In this king, the king of kings, King Jesus, the true Messiah, the one and only Son of God, not in their pagan idols, not in their Roman emperors, not in their Caesar, not in their kings, not in their customs, laws, their idolized governments, their militaries, their economies, their stock markets, their political parties, not in their presidents, not in their supreme courts. As citizens of heaven, our true hope, our only hope is in Jesus, the king of all kings. I know most of us believe that. Most of us watching, most of us here, we believe that. But I want to know if our lives reflect that. That's what I've been asking myself. Does my life reflect that? And I'm not necessarily talking about how you vote on Tuesday or how you voted. Listen, we can vote for the the donkey or the elephant, but our hope is in the Lamb of God. 
any hope we have begins and ends with Jesus. Since long ago, the people of God have clamored for a king, an earthly establishment, and a human ruler to provide them hope for a better future. And all along, God is looking at them saying, look to me. Don't forget about me. Let me lead you. And my kingdom, God says, is not of this world. My kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world. Yes, while we are here, we live in a world of structures and governments and economies that are often wrapped up in politics. We all recognize that. But we must look at our hearts. And if we're honest with ourselves, we must ask ourselves, where are we putting our allegiance? Where are our hearts finding hope? What is the object of our allegiance? I mean, when we stand and put our hand in our heart and we pledge our allegiance to a flag and the republic for which it stands, maybe that is the case. I think it's time to look at our hearts. Someone says, well, wait a second, there's a clear difference. I don't worship the president. I worship God on Sundays. My hope is in the president and in policies and in Congress and in the Supreme Court to provide a better life. But my hope for heaven is in Jesus. I understand that. I really do. And while we don't live of the world, we do live in the world. We must live in it. So we must operate and function within a system with government and laws and leaders. And naturally, we want all of that to be as good as it can be. We want it to be the best it can be. And Scripture even tells us to submit to governing authorities, to pay our taxes, to be good citizens, basically. But please, let's be careful. In our minds, there might be a clear difference between an earthly government and God's kingdom, but sometimes our words and our actions and our witness to the world tell a different story. I can't tell you how many times I have seen Christians misrepresent the values of God's kingdom while they are defending the values of an earthly kingdom. As a constant reminder and an often needed reorientation for life, Paul says these words in Philippians 3 verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the tense that's used there. Even in English, you get the drift. It's present tense. Paul isn't just projecting to the future, we will be citizens of heaven. He's saying we are citizens of heaven right now, right here. No matter where we live, no matter who is in the Oval Office, no matter what system of government we have, The truth is, our citizenship is in heaven, even now. That's why the Bible continues to tell us who we are. Hebrews 11, 1 Peter chapter 2, we are aliens and strangers. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. I need to be reminded of that because all too often, I start hammering my stakes pretty deeply into this world. I'll start looking to the things of this world to provide meaning and hope and comfort. 
It really becomes a question of allegiance. And here's the thing. Here's the thing we need to remember. Your heart can only have one true allegiance. Your heart can only have one true allegiance. When competing allegiances clash, one of them will win out. One of them will win. Will it be power and force or humility and love? Will it be treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? Will it be conquering your enemies or loving your enemies? Will it be ignoring oppression or defending those who are oppressed? Will it be the American dream or the way of the cross? One will win out. What do we do with that constant tension? I mean, those things I just described, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We live as aliens and strangers in this world with this constant tension, don't we? I mean, at the very least, we should live with that tension. <laughs> what do we do with it? Well, I, I, I think a couple of things we often do with it that aren't very good, but I think this is how we reconcile some of that tension. I think we reconcile competing values, competing allegiances by doing one of two things, by dividing or adding, by division or addition. Let me tell you what I mean by that. First of all, division. We tend to separate, and we say this is secular, and this is spiritual, and this is what I do on Sundays, and this is sort of generally how I try to live my life, but you know, we live in the world, and yes, I'm a citizen of heaven, but I'm also a citizen of this nation. And we talk almost like we have dual citizenship. And we try to keep everything separate. And that's how we handle the tension because the things happening here, yeah, they may not exactly line up with things over here, but that's a different part of my life. I have dual citizenship, if you will. And when I read what Paul wrote in Philippians 3, I don't read that. He says our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't say our citizenship is in heaven and in whatever nation you live in. I think that's the very point. His very point is we are aliens and strangers. This isn't our home. We're just passing through. But for many of us, we have to do something with that tension. And so we have our political life. We have our work life. We have our you know, fill in the blank, recreation and fun life, and then we have our spiritual life over here. And yeah, we probably know that those should merge a little bit more, but it's easier just to sort of keep them separate. Or another way we handle the, the tension is simply by addition. We merge them together. The values of God's kingdom are merged with the values of a nation of an earthly kingdom. And we conflate them into some form of Christian nationalism. And it's very scary. And our language that we use in the kingdom becomes our language we use for the earthly kingdom. And we talk about a Christian nation. And we expect the government to legislate morality. And we're surprised for some reason when it doesn't. We start reading the Bible through the lens of America rather than using the Bible as a lens to view America. Do you know the difference? 
Let me give you an example. I've heard a lot recently about God-given rights. We have God-given rights, and it seems like especially recently we've heard a lot about what some of those God-given rights are. And I'm not even going to go there. Let's go all the way back to the Declaration of Independence. These God-given rights endowed to us by our Creator that are part of the social fabric of our nation. If you have taken a history class recently, or maybe you remember when you took the history class, you know what those unalienable rights are. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Those are God-given rights, some say. Now think about this for a moment. Has God given us the right to those things? Now don't get me wrong, (laughs) I am so thankful for the blessing, the blessing of life and being able to live and and have some level of health, some level for me. (laughs) I'm thankful for that blessing. I am thankful for the blessing of liberty and freedom, of living in a place where we can gather like this and worship, where we can advance the cause of Christ in our world. I am thankful for that blessing. And I am thankful for the blessing to have opportunities for happiness. That is great. But am I entitled to those things as a citizen of heaven? Does God owe those things to me? I mean, look at Scripture. Look at the kingdom Jesus embodied and revealed. The God-given right to life. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, lose your life. And he modeled that, didn't he? The God-given right to liberty. The New Testament says the only liberty that you have, that you're entitled to, is freedom from sin and the law through Christ. In fact, you look at the early centuries. Did followers of Christ have liberty? They were persecuted. They were outcast. They were killed because they wouldn't bow down to the Caesar, to the emperor, because they bowed down to a different king. And, and look at Paul. He was in prison. So many Christians were in prison. I'm entitled to freedom from God? Well, how about the pursuit of happiness? Do you read happiness as high on God's agenda for us, personal happiness. Now, God provides a deep, abiding joy. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, those who are blessed, those who are happy, are those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are poor in spirit, peacemakers. Do we have a right from God for those things? Now, again, I don't know about you, but I consider those incredible blessings, and I thank God for them as we should but you see how sometimes we conflate things we use kingdom language to describe things that aren't really of the kingdom because that's how it's that's how we manage that tension please don't misunderstand i am not anti-american i'm not a communist i'm not a marxist (laughs) i'm incredibly thankful to be blessed 
enough to be born in this country. I'm incredibly thankful for those visionaries who gave birth to this country. I'm incredibly thankful for the men and women who sacrificed to defend this country. But make no mistake, this country is not our home. Our primary citizenship is not in America or any other nation. Heaven is our home, and our allegiance is to Jesus. Listen, you may not believe it, but the U.S. may not be around forever. I know that's hard to to think about. But the U.S. may go away. I mean, look throughout history. World powers that people thought would always be there have gone away. The U.S. may not always be here. Krispy Kreme will probably be our demise. That or reality TV. (laughs) It may not always be here, but I can assure you this. God's kingdom will stay intact. And the king of all kings will still be on the throne of his glorious kingdom. And our citizenship is not in this world, it is in heaven. And we have a counter-cultural message to live by and to share with the world. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas are sharing this message and it is met with great resistance from the powers that be. And those powers that be are looking for Paul and Silas to punish them, to quiet them, to silence them. Acts 17, verse 6, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Listen to this. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Wouldn't you like to be accused of that? If you're going to be accused of anything, wouldn't that be the thing to be accused of? Your allegiance to the one and only King Jesus? Our hope is in Jesus, the one true King. We asked some of our children around here to help us remember this message. So we asked some help from some of our parents and some of our kids, and we put together this little video of our children reminding us where our citizenship is. Watch this video. Go vote. 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 vote. But remember. 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 Jesus is king of kings. 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 We are citizens of heaven. 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 And our hope is in God. 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 And your hope is in God. (laughs) From the mouth of babes. (laughs) When I get to teach preaching out at OC, I, I 
sometimes encounter a student who does that classical on sermon day, stand up and say, I'm just going to let the spirit take over today. And what that means to me as the instructor is, I did not prepare a sermon to present today. And I always remind them, listen, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit shows up not just in your presentation, but in your preparation. <laughs> I got to tell you, in this sermon, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit has shown up in my preparation. Because I'll be honest, I deleted more than I think I included in this sermon. And you're like, man, you preach for 30 minutes. What, what else could you have said, right? But it's true. I, I think I deleted more than I included in this sermon. I do not want to offend anyone. That's not my goal. I have friends with strong political views. I have some strong political views. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. But let's not misrepresent the kingdom of God, the kingdom of which we are citizens as we defend or speak about or live out the values of an earthly kingdom. Because our hope is not in what happens Tuesday. Whatever happens Tuesday, it happens. Our hope exceeds, so far exceeds what happens on Tuesday. Our hope is in Jesus. We are citizens of heaven, not just someday when we die, but right now. So maybe scripture will be the lens through which we evaluate our political stance our actions and words and posts on social media. Maybe we'll allow the kingdom that Jesus taught about and embodied to transform our thinking. As Paul said in Romans 12, we won't conform to the pattern of this world, but we will be transformed by what? The renewal of our minds, by thinking differently, thinking through the lens of Scripture. Speaking of Scripture, let me close with Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this beautiful doxology, these closing instructions. And I'm going to ask you to stand up as I read these words over you. So please stand. And let me just read these words, these inspired words from the Spirit of God through Paul over you today. He writes, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who will or who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you, here's this charge, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. If we can help you today, we invite you to go to our website and reach out to us. Or if you're here today, you can come forward as we sing together. All to Jesus I 